0: The only thing new in the world is the history you do not know, says Harry Truman. I am Zoe, this is History Overlooked, and this week I am continuing the second part of the two-part episode that I started last week about the deaths of American presidents while in office. There were eight, and last week I covered The first four talking about cherries and milk and deep 20 inch long wounds and a lot of interesting stuff. So if you want to listen to that, go ahead and go back. It is uploaded, but this week I will be covering the most recent four. This includes Franklin Delano Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy, which are pretty well known for dying in office, but the other two weren't. However, I hope I can fill in some details for all four of these that you may not have known yet. So, first up, president who died fifth in office, chronologically, William McKinley. McKinley was born on January 29, 1843, in Niles, Ohio. He became a country school teacher and then enlisted in the Union Army in 1861. He served on the staff of Colonel Rutherford B. Hayes, a fellow Ohioan who became a mentor and a friend, helping him through the politics of Ohio. Eventually, McKinley ran for U.S. Congress in 1876 and won with the help of Hayes, who was elected president that year. Eventually, McKinley ran for president and he was elected as a Republican with a popular vote margin of 600,000, which was the largest victory at that point in 25 years. He was the last president elected to have fought in the Civil War. As president, he helped the United States win the Spanish-American War, which made the United States an imperial power as it gained control of Cuba, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. He was then re-elected president in 1900. So, six months into his term, on September 5th, McKinley gives a speech at the World's Fair in front of 116,000 people, which was a record for the fair. He had a meet and greet the next day, September 6th, 1901, at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, in a theater called the Temple of Music. The president had a personal secretary, George Cortellew, who tried to cancel the reception on two separate occasions because he and other members of the president's staff really were worried about the venue and that it would be an opportunity for an assassin. So McKinley didn't want to cancel, and instead they added police and soldiers to the entourage of Secret Service agents. Enter in Leon, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Leon Solgos, who was shy and 28 years old, and I don't know how to pronounce that last name, so I'll just keep calling him Leon. He was an unemployed factory worker, a self-described anarchist who was mad at the disparity between the rich and the poor. He came to the event with a bandaged hand and a white handkerchief that looked as if he'd heard it, and he walked right up to the president as if to shake his hand, but instead just shot him twice in the abdomen. The New York Times says, quote, There was an instant of almost complete silence, like the hush that follows a clap of thunder. The president stood stock still, a look of hesitancy, almost bewilderment, on his face. Then he retreated a step while a pallor began to steal over his features. The multitude seemed only partially aware that something serious had happened. Quote. A person named Big Jim Parker, a tall black man who was waiting in line, punched Leon, which prevented him from firing a third shot. Then soldiers and detectives rushed to Leon and began beating him until McKinley told them to stop, and they dragged Leon from the room. McKinley told George Crotelieu, My wife, be careful how you tell her, oh, be careful. They rushed McKinley to the Pan American Expo's hospital to find a doctor, but the most qualified they could find for his injuries was a gynecologist. Despite this doctor's specialty, they rushed McKinley into emergency surgery. One of the bullets caused only minor damage by hitting his sternum, but the other went clean through his stomach. The surgeon stopped the bleeding and sutured the wounds, but couldn't find the bullet. Then McKinley began to heal. He was staying in the Expo's president's house, healing, alert, even reading the newspaper. Everyone could see that he was getting better. Even Teddy Roosevelt had so much confidence that he said, quote, you may say that I am absolutely sure the president will recover. And he went on a camping trip in the Adirondack Mountains. But this is a story about presidential deaths. So obviously something went wrong. A week after being shot, McKinley's condition drastically worsened. He had developed gangrene on the walls of his stomach, which caused blood poisoning, and in a matter of hours, he became weak and lost consciousness before dying at 2.15 in the morning on September 14th at age 58, with his wife Ida sitting next to him. Barely more than a week after McKinley's death, Leon's murder trial began. He was found guilty and sentenced to death he said quote i don't believe in the republican form of government and i don't believe we should have any rulers about the shooting he said quote it was in my heart there was no escape for me all those people seemed bowing to the great ruler i made up my mind to kill that ruler on October 29th 1901 Leon was executed by the electric chair with the last words quote, I killed the president for the good of the laboring people the good people I am not sorry for my crime and that was the third presidential assassination within 36 years so here's a fun fact because it wouldn't be history overlooked without some overlooked history There was a man named Robert Todd Lincoln, who was the oldest of Lincoln's children and the only one to live into adulthood. He wasn't there when his father was shot, because he said no when his mom asked him if he wanted to come, but he obviously felt the impact of it, and at that that point when his father was shot, he was 21. He became a lawyer, and he served as a captain under Ulysses S. Grant after attending Harvard Law School then eventually became Secretary of State under President James Garfield after making, a name for his, after making a name for himself as an established, accomplished lawyer in Chicago. So then, he was present at the train station with James Garfield and the Secretary of State, among others, when Garfield was shot. And at this point, he was 37 years old. So that was the second presidential assassination that he has a strong connection to. Then, 20 years later, he's not in the cabinet, but is working as the president of the Pullman Palace Car Company in Chicago. He decided to attend the exposition in Buffalo in New York in 1901, where he was present when President McKinley got shot. At this point, he was age 57, and people aren't really sure whether he actually witnessed it, but he was definitely at the expo and was both invited by and expected by President McKinley. So, Robert Todd Lincoln, son of the assassinated president, Abraham Lincoln, witness of assassination of James Garfield, and possible witness of the assassination of President McKinley. Almost near age 60, he vowed that he would never meet a president again. So, there's that fun fact for you. All right, on to the next president, Warren Harding. He was born in Ohio in 1865 and went to a one-room schoolhouse and to Ohio Central College when he was 14. He had always been good at public speaking and editing and enhanced these abilities in college. After graduating from college, he bought a local newspaper with his friends and helped it get back on its feet financially, when his wife Florence Kling DeWolf helped a lot too because she had financial resources and an eye for business. At the urging of Florence to get involved in politics, Harding became became a state senator for four years, lieutenant governor for two years, and a U.S. senator for six years, but he was not the best senator. He missed two-thirds of his votes, including the vote for women's suffrage, although he did claim to strongly support it. In 1920, the Republican National Convention was deadlocked on a candidate, and much like Garfield, Harding was turned to as the compromise candidate. He beat James Cox with 404 of the 531 electoral votes, with Calvin Coolidge as his running mate. Harding is known for being a bad president. I was listening to a podcast a few days ago that said no matter what you believe in, in terms of politics, everyone seems to agree that Harding was the worst president in history. This is not necessarily because of his politics, but rather because of how he handled the position. This is not to say I believe this or to impose this biased opinion on you, but just so you're aware, experts pretty much agree that he was not the best. Since at least 1918, Harding suffered shortness of breath, bouts of chest pain, and difficulty sleeping, unless his head was propped on on several pillows. Doctors warned Harding, while he was in the Senate, that his various and multiple affairs might physically injure his delicate and enlarged heart. He also had a nervous condition called neurasthenia, which causes physical and mental exhaustion along with headaches, insomnia, and irritability, which is believed to be the result of emotional stress or conflict. But Harding was pushing through, and in early 1923, he went on a tour called the Voyage of Understanding. This was halfway through his third year in office, just as scandals involving his administration, such as bribes, were becoming public. So he comes down with the flu or food poisoning, but decides to keep going. And on the way to St. Louis from Washington, D.C. on June 20th, Harding gives one of the first presidential speeches to be broadcast live by radio. He went to multiple cities, did multiple events, eventually aggravating his hemorrhoids and getting sunburned on a horseback ride in Zion National Park. People along the route later claimed that Harding looked tired. He had swollen lips and puffed eyes, but his personal physician claimed he was feeling, quote, feeling fit and in splendid physical trim. On July 4th, Harding got on the USS Henderson with his wife, staff, reporters, three cabinet members, 460 sailors, 21 officers, 72 Marine guards and a Navy band for a four-day trip to Alaska. Future president Herbert Hoover, who was Commerce Secretary at the time, said that Harding wanted to play bridge all day and all night so much that since there were only four other bridge players on the boat, they set up shifts so that one person always had a relief. Hoover later said, quote, For some reason I developed a distaste for bridge on this journey and never played it again. So, Harding and his posse go through Alaska on his tour and then come back down through Canada where he gives a speech to 40,000 people in Stanley Park, then tried to play golf but only had enough strength for a few holes. The next day, July 27th, Harding's ship hit another bump but everything was okay. Then, he gave a speech to 60,000 people at the University of Washington, where he referred to Alaska as Nebraska, dropped his manuscript, and had to hold on to the podium to keep his balance. Then, he went to the Seattle Press Club and had to go to bed early because of upper abdominal pain. One of the physicians said, he thought Harding had an enlarged heart, so he set up a meeting in San Francisco with Dr. Ray Lima Wilbur, who was president of the American Medical Association and of Stanford, and Dr. Charles Cooper, a leading cardiologist. Harding declined a wheelchair and walked to the limo. On July 30th, with a fever of 102 degrees Fahrenheit, Harding was diagnosed with pneumonia and had to cancel the rest of his California appearances. On August 1st, with his temperature back to normal, lungs clearing up, the ability to sit up in bed, read, and eat solid food, he was feeling better, clearly. Then, the next day, around 7.30 p.m., while his wife read him an article from the Saturday Evening Post as he lay in bed, Harding died abruptly. There are different opinions about why. Sawyer, his personal doctor who denied Harding's heart problems, said that it was a cerebral hemorrhage. Today, though, all the experts blame congestive heart failure and say he might have suffered a series of heart attacks in the past few months, right before his death. It's not known because florence rejected an autopsy and wanted her husband to be embalmed shortly after his death there is a book called the strange death of president harding written by gaston means a former harding administration official where he claimed that florence harding poisoned her husband said he violated prohibition by drinking in the white house and that he had multiple extramarital affairs, which is at least partly true because in 2015, a DNA test revealed a woman who in 1927 claimed her, da- her daughter was Harding's was proven to be true. So he did. he did have a child without his wife. And so Gaston Means believes that Florence poisoned her husband, but most experts say that it was probably something to do with his congestive heart failure and some heart attacks. Anyway, that's the story of Warren Harding, who died in 1923. So, remember Robert Todd Lincoln, the person who was around for three presidential assassinations? He comes in again here. He eventually broke the vow of never meeting a president again because William Taft, who was then the current chief justice and former president, and current president Warren Harding, We're dedicating the Lincoln Memorial to Lincoln, and Robert Todd Lincoln was the only living son and could not forego the honor. This is interesting, though, because Harding was born the same year Lincoln died, and then died during the same year that Robert Todd Lincoln met him. Anyway. Conspiracy theories aside, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, also known as FDR. He was born in 1882 in Hyde Park, New York, attended Harvard University and Columbia Law School, and a few months into his law school endeavors, he married Anna Eleanor Roosevelt, the niece of President Theodore Roosevelt in March of 1905. Teddy Roosevelt gave Eleanor away as a bride. FDR was elected to the New York Senate in 1910 before becoming appointed to Assistant Secretary of the Navy by President Wilson. Remember James Cox? Harding beat him in 1920. FDR was his vice presidential candidate. FDR had polio in 1921 when he was 39, which left his lower body paralyzed. This comes in a little bit later, but he was elected president in 1933 and served four terms through the Great Depression and World War II. He was a highly and is a highly beloved president in March 1944. An examination by his doctors showed a variety of heart ailments, high blood pressure, and bronchitis. One of the doctors wrote in a memo, dated July tenth, nineteen forty four, I am recording these opinions in the light of having informed Admiral McIntyre Saturday afternoon, July eighth, nineteen forty four, that I did not believe that, if Mr. Roosevelt were elected president again, he had the physical capacity to complete a term. People close to FDR noted his weak, tired appearance, his lessened energy, his lapses of concentration and memory, but the American public was largely unaware of this, although rumors did run rampant. His election and the Yalta conference put a massive strain on him, so he went to Warm Springs for a retreat. 83 days into his fourth term, March 30th, 1945, FDR is on this retreat in Warm Springs, Georgia. He's sitting in the living room on April 12th with Lucy Mercer, who is, he is known for having an extramarital affair with, two cousins, and his dog Fala, while an artist painted his portrait. Around 1 p.m., to his cousin, who saw his head drop and asked what was wrong. FDR whispered, I have a terrific pain in the back of my head and collapsed unconscious. They summoned a doctor who recognized the signs of a cerebral hemorrhage and gave him a shot of adrenaline in the heart to revive him. Mercer and the artist left the house, expecting FDR's family to arrive soon. A doctor told Eleanor Roosevelt that FDR had fainted so she said she would go to Georgia after a scheduled speaking event that evening. But before she could make it, a little over two hours later, FDR was pronounced dead at 3.30 p.m. at the age of 63. Eleanor was listening to a piano performance when she was summoned back to the White House and was told the president had died. She later said that during that ride home, which was one of dread, She knew in her heart that he had died. She changed into a black dress when her daughter Anna arrived, then called her four sons who were on active military duty. She met with Truman, FDR's vice president, at 5.30 and said, Harry, the president is dead. He asked if there was anything he could do for her, and she responded, Is there anything we can do for you? You're the one in trouble now. This is its own thing. FDR didn't tell Truman anything. (laughs) Like, anything. Truman was not an informed vice president. He didn't know about the Manhattan Project. He really, he just did not know what was going on. He and FDR had had five or fewer conversations ever. Truman hadn't been his vice president for the last three terms. It had most recently been Henry Wallace, who FDR wanted to be his vice president, but at this point, vice presidents were elected at the Democratic National Convention and Wallace didn't make it, Truman did, but that's its own story and its own show, which you can find uploaded as well. Anyway, authors Lomazow and Fetman, drawing most of their evidence from photos, believe that FDR actually died of melanoma that metastasized from his forehead to his brain. This brain cancer diagnosis does fit better than heart trouble, especially because his mental state was questioned more than his appearance. But there was no autopsy at the request of Eleanor, and FDR's medical records mysteriously went missing after his death. So, here is the last one a relatively recent one, and definitely an infamous one. John F. Kennedy was born on May ninth, 1917, in Brookline, Massachusetts, the second of nine children. He had persistent heart problems growing up that were later diagnosed as Addison's disease, an endocrine disorder, also called adrenal insufficiency, which is when the adrenal glands produce too little of cortisol, which helps regulate the metabolism, reduce inflammation, and assist with formulation. Symptoms include fatigue, weight loss, and decreased appetite, hyperpigmentation, low blood pressure and blood sugar, abdominal muscle and joint pains, irritability, depression, gastrointestinal symptoms, and sometimes even more. So he lived with this throughout his life, but he took care of it, did what he could, was managing it. His family was wealthy and prominent in Boston, and Jack attended private schools growing up and then went to Harvard. He joined the Navy in 1941 and his father told him that he must fulfill his brother's duty who died during the war to become the first president, the first Catholic president of the United States. So, Kennedy joins the House of Representatives in January 1947 at the age of 29, then the Senate in 1952 when he beat Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. He also ran on a presidential ticket under Adelaide Stevenson in 1956, but lost. He announced his candidacy for president on January 2nd, 1960, getting the nomination over Hubert Humphrey and won the presidency against Nixon. He was inaugurated on January 20th, 1961. So, flash forward nearly three years You've noticed a lot of the presidents who have died in office died within a year of a term, whether it was their first, second, or fourth term. They have died within a year of their inauguration. But Kennedy's different. So flash forward nearly three years to a motorcade on November twenty second, 1963. Jackie Kennedy... Rarely accompanied JFK on political outings, but he did. she did this time. So, in this motorcade, they pass by the Texas School Book Depository building at 12.30 p.m. Three shots are fired from the sixth floor, fatally wounding President Kennedy and seriously injuring Texas Governor John Connolly. Kennedy was shot in the neck and in the head. He was pronounced dead 30 minutes later at Parkland Hospital in Dallas at the age of 46. Lyndon Johnson was sworn in at 2.38 p.m. with Jackie Kennedy standing by his side, still in her pink suit that was splattered with blood. In his first public statement on November 23rd, 1963, Johnson said, quote, This is a sad time for all people. We have suffered a loss that cannot be weighed. For me, it is a deep, personal tragedy. I know that the world shares the sorrow that Mrs. Kennedy and her family bear. I will do my best. That is all I can do. I ask for your help and God's. Lee Harvey Oswald joined the U.S. Marines in 1956, was discharged in 1959, and left nine days later for the Soviet Union, where he unsuccessfully tried to become a citizen. He married a Soviet woman while working in Minsk and returned to the United States in 1962 with his wife and infant daughter. He allegedly shot at and missed U.S. Army General Edwin Walker on April 10th in Dallas. Remember that Kennedy was shot in November. Less than an hour after Kennedy was shot, Oswald killed a policeman who questioned him on the street near his rooming house in Dallas. He was then arrested 30 minutes later in a movie theater after multiple people reported seeing a suspect. He was formally arraigned on November 23rd for the murders of Kennedy and office, Officer J.D. Tippett. And during his interrogation, he denied all guilt, saying, quote, I didn't shoot anybody, no sir, I'm just a patsy. Which is interesting because... The three other people who assassinated presidents admitted to it. Some were even proud of it. One said that it was for nothing, but he still acknowledged that he did it. This is the only person who assassinated a president who said, I'm not guilty. While being transferred from Dallas Police Headquarters to a more secure county jail, a crowd gathered to watch and a person named Jack Ruby emerged and fatally wounded Lee Harvey Oswald with a single shot to the stomach. And Oswald died at Parkland Hospital, which is the same hospital where Kennedy died. Many believe that Jack Ruby killed Oswald to mask a larger conspiracy. In a poll by the website five thirty eight, only 33% of Americans believe that Oswald alone killed Kennedy. So, now I'm getting into a conspiracy theory. Nothing here is officially backed. These are not cold, hard facts. These are just theories of people but I think that they are interesting enough to include. So, yes, Kennedy's death, his murder, is on tape. There are videos of it. You've probably seen it. There's one particular video that is very graphic and clear, and it's there's this particular frame. Zapruder frame, 313. You can see, right at the moment that Kennedy is shot, his head moves forward, and his chin hits his chest from the force before he leans backwards, indicating that he was shot from behind and not from the front. There are... Various theories of people who could have done this. There was a man with an umbrella called the Umbrella Man who had a black umbrella on a sunny day. He's talked about it, though, said it was just a really bad coincidence. Some people think that it was an inside job, that it was the CIA, possibly, including Lyndon Johnson, whom Nixon mentioned in a quote, quote, Lyndon and I both wanted to be president. The difference was that I wouldn't kill for it. Okay, some people think it was the Cubans and the Soviets, as Oswald went to Mexico City two months before the murder. Some people say it was the mob, as JFK's brother Robert had attempted to prosecute the mob and kill Castro days before JFK was murdered. He said he was worried that he had just gotten him killed days before he actually was. Trump, Donald Trump, claimed that Senator Ted Cruz's father had been spotted with Oswald before the shooting, implying that he was the one who murdered him. Anyway, there are a lot of theories about who did it. Like I said, only 33% of Americans... As according to that poll by five thirty eight, actually believe that Lee Harvey Oswald did it alone, and that frame. All I'm gonna say that frame is very intriguing. The fact that the force knocked his head, his chin, forward instead of backward. It's a very interesting fact. Anyway, there are thirty thousand. Never before seen or unredacted documents that were released by the National Archives to the public in 2017 and 2018. And there's another set to be released in October of 2021. Maybe there will be more information then. So there you have it. Those are the eight presidents who were killed with a lot of details of conspiracy theories. A lot of interesting facts that you don't really learn about when you learn about these deaths but alas that is it that is the end of this two part episode and I will close it out by giving you a quote from Franklin Delano Roosevelt he says quote the truth is found when men are free to pursue it all right See you next week.